Please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 25. We've reached the halfway point of this first book of the Bible. We're going at breakneck speed through. We are leaving Abraham. That's bittersweet. It's been a real joy to study God's work through Abraham and Sarah, chapter 12 to to chapter 25. Now we are introduced to Isaac's line just a bit. It really ends up turning into the story of Jacob leading up to the end of the book, from chapter 25 to the end. He's alive there towards the very end even. Um, you have Jacob and then, of course, to Joseph. <clears throat> but we have a transition here now in the passage before us, uh, introducing Jacob and Esau, who will become major players in what unfolds going forth. Uh, you see this as a setting of the stage for what happens in the rest of this great book of Genesis. On the one hand, you'll see the clear hand of God, the sovereign hand of God, overseeing and orchestrating whatever comes to pass. On the other hand, you'll see the messy reality of how this falls out in human life, in everyday life, in the natural order of things. Things that are really curious to us, they're mysterious to us. Mysterious on the large level about God's sovereignty and his choice, his election, but mysterious as it relates to how people act with each other and the things that we do as human beings. So with that as a bit of a preface, let's now turn to Genesis 25. I'll start at verse 19, read down to verse 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil soup, stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are often left amazed by what we read in Scripture. 
This is one of those occasions. We see your sovereign decree that seems so straightforward and clear, but then we see how unpredictably that decree falls out in time and space in the people here depicted in the pages of Scripture. Lord, please help us by your Holy Spirit to understand and apply what we read from your Holy Word today. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin, I'll share with you just a bit of a personal trek uh, that I found myself on as I started studying the Bible some years ago. I remember whenever I came across the doctrine of election or predestination, these kinds of teachings, um, they initially, when I became a believer, really offended my sensibilities. Now, I don't want to say uh, that growing and becoming more mature made me realize that wasn't true. I'm not saying that. There are many people more mature than I'll ever be spiritually that won't agree with some of the teachings about predestination and election uh, that I believe the Scripture says. But just to share my story a little bit, because maybe this will help you depending where you are in your journey as you're walking in the Lord and reading His Word. I came to faith uh, early about my preteens when I had heard the gospel clearly preached. Been to church every week, just was not at a place where they were really walking through the Bible and explaining the gospel clearly. I heard it in a backyard Bible club the most clear way uh, as a lady was laying out the story of the gospel, reading passages, whole sections of the gospel. It just became clear to me by, of course, God's grace that this was the truth, that my sins could be forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for me. I believe that believing in Jesus, that meant I was saved. I understood the gospel. I love that message. Still love that message. And when I heard it, I wanted to tell everybody that message, especially people that I went to church with. Many of us where I grew up went to the same place and wanted to share it with them too so that they could come to know Christ like I had come to know Christ. And I started a bit of an evangelistic campaign as much as one who was 12 or 13 could do. And I would tell people about this. And most of the people were not interested in what I was saying. And it really bothered me. I thought, well, am I not convincing them? Do they not recognize it? It confused me a bit as to why more people would not be interested in what I had to say regarding the gospel. So I started reading my Bible on my own, but I didn't really understand it well. So I thought, where could I go to learn what the Bible says? And I had friends who had gone to different churches. Not many of them. Most of the people I knew went to the same church. I thought, I need to find one of those kind of Bible freak, Jesus freak people. And the Currys were the people that I knew that helped me most with this. And uh, Nathan's mom told my mom about their Bible school and the various things they did at the church. And I would start going to these things, and they would take whole sections of the Bible and just read through them and explain them. It, there, there was no sleight of hand. They would just read the passage and say what it said, and it, I could compare it, and it made good sense to me. But the truth was, when I would hear this message about God choosing some for salvation, um, that it was his sovereignty that determined who believed, these kinds of concepts that would come out as they were reading, they offended me completely. Uh, I think our natural sense is to be offended by that. Even believers, when they first become believers, or if they're not probing the scriptures, and again, I don't mean to say that you're not mature if you have been probing them. I'm just challenging you to think about it. My trek was, I didn't like the doctrine, so I put it off. I didn't really want to listen to it. I'd shut off when I hear people start using the certain words. Um, that becomes problematic, though, when you're studying the Bible, and it's so, it's so ingrained in the, the, the language. So I would get cassette tapes... That's how long ago this was. I would listen on the radio to various radio preachers who handled the Bible. And I started to notice a basic pattern. I don't mean it's universal, but generally, the preachers who were more topical in their approach, though biblical, though believed the gospel, though were inspiring in many ways, they would not address this doctrine of election or God's sovereignty very much at all. 
They would talk about topics that were important, but they would more or less leave this subject. Or they would treat it very lightly and move on. And I noticed that because they just seemed to not walk through the scriptures the same way. But the ones that would go verse by verse, they had to deal with it. And I used to love to hear, how would they get to this? And I, would, and I remember going to the church library that had various cassettes and try to find out how they handled certain verses to see if they would say what it seems to be saying. And the ones that would go through the text like that, most of the time, they would just say it like it was, and it was hard to deny. This was what the Bible taught, God's sovereign election, which really is what grace is about. I understood it intellectually, but emotionally, I still did not like it. And I think the reason I didn't like it, at least this was my reason, not only did I feel the encroachment upon my perceived autonomy, like, I, come on, God, I'm free. I should be able to do this or do that. It also bothered me that Back to my early days as a Christian, I could preach to people, I could really go and profess uh, or try to evangelize them, explain the, to, the gospel to them. If God had not chosen them or if God had not worked in them, then they would not believe. And that bothered me for all the people I knew who did not know Christ. Now think of what I'm saying there. It bothered me that I, in my power, could not bring them to salvation unless God... See, my dependence was heavily on my ability to talk to them. I thought God somehow needed that. Then I started to realize that this truth of what the scripture says, rather than being constricting, starts to free us insofar as understanding the proclamation of the gospel and how God calls us. Now, it did not happen quickly. It was a process. And I'm saying this to you, that as we talk about these doctrines that the Bible lays out, I believe they'll become very precious to you if you give them time. Um, Give them time. If it's the first time you're hearing some of these things since you've been coming here, um, don't put it off. Don't just say, oh, he's talking about that again. I don't want to hear it. Oh, listen to it. If it's, it's in the Bible, listen to it. Give it time and see if it doesn't start to make an impact and really change your thinking and put you at a different angle that makes you now see it as really the explanation of what grace is. What actual grace is that we need to be saved and right with God comes from this reality of God's sovereignty. And it will become a precious doctrine to you. I remember where a bit of a switch flipped for me where I could no longer just keep putting it off. I was going to the Curry's church in the evening services. Still go to the church I grew up in in the morning, then I go in the evening services there. And the pastor there was going ever so slow. I mean, I'm going at lightning speed through these books compared to what this guy went through. He went through Romans for, I want to say, 15 years is how long it took him to finish Rome. No, I'm serious. It was 15 years. You can... Anyways... It so happens when I start coming in the evening, he is at Romans 8. And he gets to Romans 9, and when he, when he just read the verses, before he even gave any explanation, it just, it really kind of, it, it, it shocked me, it stopped me, it, it humbled me, it made me say, I got to quit putting off what seems to be so, so integral to God's moving. In Romans 9, and I'll come back to this later in the sermon because it directly applies to this passage. In Romans 9, talking about Rebekah having Jacob and Esau, listen to what Paul says. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done neither, done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have hated. That's a quote later in the Old Testament about their relationship. What shall we then say, Paul says, about God's sovereign election? Is there injustice on God's part? That's what I felt like. 
truth be told, that's what I felt like. This isn't fair. Should we say that? The Bible reveals he did this. Should we say that? Paul says, by no means, in no way, not at all. You should not come to that conclusion that God is unjust. Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I think we find God's grace, his sovereign grace, mysterious because it is steered by his purposes rather than our expectations or our conventions, if you will. It's difficult for us because the old man dies hard, the autonomous person in us. It's difficult for us to let go and recognize who the sovereign is. We don't like to admit that in our natural person. So I feel for you if you're in that process, but I also will warn you that the Lord's doing his work through his word, and there will be some pain in that process, but I'm telling you that it comes out on the other side filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with an appreciation for God. It'll enhance your worship. It'll enhance uh, your desire to obey. It'll enhance your prayer life. It'll enhance why, uh, how you share the message of the gospel. It actually revolutionizes all those things. It doesn't make you paralyzed. It actually unleashes you to follow God and speak for God and praise God and pray to God. But you have to be patient with God's process, and we'll see it unfold starting in this passage. Even in the lives of these people, God makes decrees, that's true, but then they fall out in natural order in ways that are really amazing, curious to us, to say the least, when we see how his will unfolds. Now, let's look at the the human level first when we return to the storyline and see Isaac, who'd just been born, of course, of Abraham and Sarah, just been married now to Rebecca in the passages before, in the chapter before. Now we come to Isaac having his first children. But we notice there's quite a gap between the time he's married and the time he actually has his twins, their twins. We'll see God use trials in the lives of Isaac and Rebecca. That's what he does in our lives. He orders these trials to develop and grow and deepen our faith. Verse 20, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Remember, he was 37 when he met her, so some years elapsed. Then he, then he marries her. The daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, to be his wife. 40 years old when he got married. Then we read in the text, he was 60 when his twin sons were born. So this helps us appreciate the struggle that Isaac and Rebekah experienced right away in their marriage. 20 years before they have a child. Again, he's promised a child. Like Abraham, he knows this has to be, but why is the baby not coming? It's not as severe a tribal trial as Abraham and Sarah, but nevertheless a very real test for both Isaac and Rebekah's faith. And what does Isaac do? What does this trial cause in Isaac's life? And Isaac prayed, verse 21, to the Lord for his wife. Trials come into our lives by God's hand, to drive us to dependence upon him, to go to him. Prayer is going to the one who can make a difference and seeking him out. Isaac longed for that child. Rebecca longed for that child. And he prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, unable to have a child for some years. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. By the language and the tense, we know that he prayed for some time. I'm not suggesting the whole 20 years maybe, but it probably was a long time praying before she actually conceived. 
this whole trial, this whole waiting, was part of what God used to push Isaac towards himself. So we're, we do well to not despise our trials, even though they're difficult and hard to understand. They are ordered by God, and our best response is to go to him in prayer, even if we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. That's what the psalmist does. How long, O Lord, will you do this? That's okay. As we come with reverence and we come with faith, we say, how long, O Lord, or whatever it is we might ask or appeal to him concerning. Isaac does this when his wife cannot have a child. Prayer in itself, consider for a moment what it is. It's communication from a believer to their father. It's an exercise of faith, believing that the one who we talk to is in control of all things, has the power to intercede or to act. From our perspective, we realize God is, is omnipotent. We recognize this about him. He's personal at the same time. He's sovereign. And so we go to prayer so that we can be more dependent upon him. Not that we might change God's mind, but that we might offer up to God, this is what our desire is. If this desire is not to be, change my desire. That's the essence of our attitude behind prayer. Pray for those things you desire, but according to those things that are God's will, recognizing he's sovereign. Isaac prays, and it's God's will that she conceives. And through this trial, his faith grows. Rebecca becomes pregnant. But then another trial immediately thereafter. Yes, she's pregnant, but it's a struggle in this pregnancy. Verse 22, the children struggle together within her. Now, she doesn't know, I'm presuming, that she has twins at this point. She just knows something's going awry. We've had women in our church with twins. We've had women in our church, at least one woman I know, had triplets. That's got to be something, uh, something of a trial on its own. And here she is with twins. She doesn't know that for sure. And there's something happening there that's unusual. Unusual between Jacob and Esau. At least to her, I'm sure she talked to other women. So is this, the, is this normal like this? And now I, I only saw the pregnancies my wife went through, but I remember the end of the first pregnancy looking over at her and she was laying on her back and I saw AJ's head and foot or what move around. And I'm not, I, I saw it in her stomach. I leaned over and thought, Lord, thank you that I am not in her situation right now. <laughs> and she's trying to sleep, cannot sleep with this baby moving all around nine months in. Twins, and then this situation like it's happening, uh, she's under real duress now. She's struggling with this physically and wondering, is something more going on? Why am I dealing with such turmoil in, inside of me? And she says in verse 22, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So the trial does what? She went to inquire of the Lord. She goes to God. The trial she's undergoing serves to bring her closer to dependence upon the Lord, and she goes to the Lord. And in this case, this won't be the norm. This is not what I would say is normative, but this is what happens in her case, and it's pretty powerful. The Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. Whoa, I mean, what would that even mean? And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This was a difficult pregnancy physically already. Now it becomes spiritually and psychologically difficult thinking that God has just made a statement about my children. I have twins. They're, they're in turmoil with one another. And then God is prophesying in some way that there will be some enmity between them. So she knows that God is sovereign. It does not read as though he's saying this might be the case. It seems very clear. He's saying this is what will be. 
Imagine if you knew something like Rebecca found out about her sons and their future relationship. What a burden that would be. I think we think we'd like to know the future, but I bet you it wouldn't be better for us in most cases. Now she knows, and this has got to stress her to think in terms of those two. It also taints her a bit about one over the other. Oh, the second one, the younger one, will be more favored by God. She knows, everybody knows, Isaac is the son of Abraham, the man of promise. Isaac knows the promises of God. They know the spiritual realities and promises given to their house. So there is some grasp on this. In birthright, as we come to see it, means something culturally, but in this case even more specifically, that typically you would think that that child would be the one that carries the covenant forward. So the oldest child, they would think. doesn't mean that's God's sovereign decree. We know it's not. But in their human way of thinking, that birthright's important. But yet God says this younger one will actually be the, the one who is in God's favor, that the older will serve him. So she is tainted by what she hears. She's probably confused, maybe apprehensive by what she hears. This is the mysterious, sovereign grace of God, his elective purposes working out even in her womb. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now I ask you this interpretive question as you've read this a few times in my reading it. Does God's word regarding Jacob and Esau here and what he says to Rebekah sound like something might happen or it will happen? Does it sound like God's predicting or is he directing? Rebekah sees it as directing. She recognizes the way he's speaking. We have a statement of God's predestination here. Then in verse 24, we see how it begins to fall out between Jacob and Esau after their birth, even the birth itself. But we pause to ask ourselves this question at this moment. Why is Jacob chosen over Esau? Pretend we didn't read Romans 9 a moment ago. Just uh, why would he pick Jacob over Esau? Why does God choose as he does? Why does God show grace? He certainly is not bound to show favor to anybody. Why does God give grace to some and not to others? Well, the way this story unfolds, begins to shed some light on the mysterious grace of God. And what we'll see now, starting at verse 24 down to the end of the chapter, grace, God's favor, is bestowed according to his elective purposes. It's not beholden to our expectations and conventions. Yes, we'll humanly say, I think it should be this way, Lord, or I don't think that's fair, Lord. I don't, this doesn't seem right to me, Lord. None of that sways him to do something else. Thanks be to him. But for those moments, we think that way. We have those thoughts. How God shows and gives grace is not bound by any of our expectations or judgments that we have. Not dependent on our view of how he should do this or that. Let's see this unfold. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Esau is related to Edom, the Edomites, in that it means red. Most scholars agree. His name is Esau, verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. So his name was called Jacob. Why? Because his hand was grabbing his heel. Uh, It could be this, that they were standing around watching the babies be born, 
and they know the turmoil that was already in the womb. She certainly does. Maybe they're laughing a little bit about that reality as the baby comes out here as Esau, and that yet there's a hand holding on. And there's maybe a laugh a little bit. Look at that. The other one's holding on to the other one. He's not going to let go. He doesn't want, he wants to be first. He's supplanting, or he's trying to usurp his big brother. And Jacob means supplanter. Now it becomes something else, but that's initially why he's called Jacob. He's the usurper, the supplanter. He, he's trying, he can't do it. But his older brother's born first, but boy, he's holding on. That's a picture of the rest of the relationship going forward for sure. Verse 27, it continues to unfold more. Remember, the decree of God is revealed by what he says to Rebekah. But now, this is how it falls out. And this is true. The Lord has his sovereign decrees, which we don't know. Sometimes he reveals them in Scripture. Mostly he doesn't. And then, by the power of those decrees, they fall out in real life, in natural life. The life we live. The life we interact with. That's the level we navigate and experience. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. This does not mean to say one was manly and one was kind of girly. It doesn't mean that at all. Dwelling in tents means he kept domestic affairs. It means that he managed things, probably like Abraham did mostly, and like, uh, that's probably the way Isaac did it as well. Really, Esau is the outlier in that he's out and about hunting and killing things, bringing them back to eat, and, and he's more of a, really seems like he's not as tied to the responsibilities of the homestead, whereas Jacob is, tending his business, taking care of what he's responsible for. It's not saying one's right or wrong, the text doesn't say it, it's just they're different. And one really earns the respect of the father because the father likes what he's bringing him, the food. Whereas the mother, she also knows this prophecy. It's not that they probably all know it, but how they look at it is different. And he's around more, that is, Jacob's around more, and so he's closer to his mother. It's interesting what Candlish, who I've quoted to you many times, what he says. Esau's bold spirit found its fitting sphere of, exor- of, sphere of exercise in the excitement of the chase of the wild sports of the field. Jacob, again, being of milder disposition, addicted himself to more domestic pursuits. He was disposed to live a quiet, pastoral, managerial life. He dwelt in tents, following the profession of a shepherd farmer, tending his flocks and herds, tilling the soil, keeping to himself and his responsibilities. Well, what comes from this is a bit of a picture that we see unfold in the lives of the patriarchs. We know as parents, when we mess up like this, it has effects. It's not unusual that we might tend towards one child's personality more because of just the way personalities work. But as parents, we're called to do our best to show our love equally. It can be a challenge. And we see here how Isaac and Rebecca are characterized as parents. Isaac loved Esau, verse 28, because he ate of his game. He liked what Esau was finding and bringing. But Rebecca loved Jacob. That's just a commentary, a divine commentary to let us know the dynamics that would be unfolding that helps us understand what comes later. It also helps us understand how Jacob parents as well. We could all stand some review about this, but we move on in the passage because the story continues to unfold. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Now appreciate, this isn't just like the hunting I do, where after a day I'm really exhausted and I go to Wendy's. 
It's not like that. This is, could be days of trying to find something and not killing anything. It's not like you kill something every time you go out and hunt. I'm sure it was that way then, and even with their primitive weaponry, even more so. So here he is literally exhausted in a true sense, and he's hungry. And there's Jacob cooking stew that's smelling so good. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Why does he say red stew? Um, eating meat was certainly part of their diet, but it was a delicacy for sure. They kept the flocks, but they weren't eating it every day, most likely, maybe once a week. They'd re- eat grains and other kinds of stews and soups and such, breads, no doubt. And the time to time, they'd have some, some really good meat, and that's what was going on. And here he's exhausted, hungry. He's like, let me have some of that stew. You know, a simple display of a loving brother would be like, yeah, have some. I mean, that's what I think you would do. Not Jacob, though. Jacob sees a moment of weakness here. It's like, you know, I'm second here. I could be first. And I know Esau's a man of this kind of appetite and impulsivity. I got a chance here just to make a gain on him. I don't think Esau will even care. See, the birthright was important in that time and place because it usually meant the oldest had the first the first priority on inheritance and such. But in the case of Jacob and Esau, there was a spiritual attachment because of the promises of God to Abraham. Esau was feeling pretty independent. He wasn't a keeper of the flocks. So his view of the future for him would probably be pretty independent. He didn't really care that much about spiritual blessings that his great-grandchildren would get. He cared about now. That's Esau. So as he's thinking about it, Jacob knows the weakness, and he's working this angle And he says, why don't you sell me your birthright? And Esau says something very interesting. I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? See, we're sensual beings. And if we do not recognize the power of our appetites, whatever they may be, sensual meaning sensory, the things we can taste, hear, touch, feel, that make give us pleasure immediately, if we don't have hold of those things, they take over our lives. Hunger is one of the many sensualities. Sexual uh, appetite. It could be appetite for more stuff. It could be the appetite for pleasures that, that make us use drugs or alcohol, things that just, you know, we don't even think of the future because we're into the now. Our being sensual beings is a blessing, but under the fall, it's very challenging. And we see what's unfolding here. Now, when he says, I am about to die, you may say, well, that's just, that's a big overstatement for him. It, it is, but if you have had sons, you know that there is a real urgency they will come. If I had a dollar every time one of my boys said, I'm starving, I'd be a very rich man. In fact, there was one time when they were 16, 18, and 20 approximately. It was when AJ was still in the house for the summers from college and they'd all be together. And our grocery bill, and that's before the current inflationary, uh, you know, eight bucks for eggs cycle. I can't even imagine what it would be like now. But at that time, it was $550 every two weeks, 1100 bucks to feed those three boys. Now, don't nutrition shame me about this. I'm just telling you that's what it cost. At one time, we were going through four to five gallons of milk in a week, and Sherry drinks no milk, and I drink just a little. When they say they're starving, man, you just have to see these people to appreciate what their, their looks on their eyes. Sherry would say that they, when you got hungry boys, they're hangry. They're, they're really hangry right now. You got to get home. It's time to eat. In fact, I put it to you this way. This is how severe it is. If you had a, a terrorist situation break out in the, in the, in the world, where there's like 30 terrorists who had a couple American citizens somewhere on the earth, what I would do is starve my boys for two days 
then I would tell them that there's food in that, wherever they're keeping that hostage, there's food there. They would, they would take out all the hostages and be eating within hours, and it would be over. Esau says, after coming from the, I'm about to die. What good? I don't care about a birthright. This is the, the sense of what he's saying. And there is Jacob ready to make this happen. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and he drank and he rose and went his way. He didn't even think another thing of it. And the passage says, Esau despised his birthright. Saw nothing valuable about what it meant to be born to Isaac. What it meant to have the promises of God attached to his father. That meant nothing. Give me food now. I want food now. He didn't value anything spiritual or heavenly here or future. He only valued what he would experience in the moment. Jacob was ruthless in this moment, and Esau was impulsive and short-sighted. And the scripture gives the bigger blame to Esau for all of Jacob's connivery. You notice it doesn't say, Jacob supplanted Esau. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. What are the areas of sensual gratification that you find clouding your vision of the eternal? Could be any of those things I mentioned. When these things take control, we lose all rational perspective, all true future perspective. We, make, we alter things that are temporary or the immediate on the altar of the eternal too much. And we see this played out in the life of Esau for sure. Now, did all of this unfold in their lives because of the way they were raised? Well, on the surface level, we know a little bit about how they were raised. We can say it didn't help. But why did it all unfold ultimately? Because God decreed for this to happen. At least it fell out the way God decreed it. And now back to Romans. Remember what it says in Romans. Though they were not yet born and had not done, they had, they had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. I've considered one and left the other to his own devices, essentially. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? No, there's not. There's no injustice here. You can't say it's unfair what's happened. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the mystery of God's grace. And when you think about it, why does God show grace to anybody at any time? How does he choose who he chooses? Why does he choose who he chooses? Remember back in Genesis, he picks Noah? And yes, it says that Noah caught his attention, but we know from Hebrews that the gift of faith is what's granted to people by God and exercised. So even the faith that's demonstrated, on the surface level we see this person, is a gift from God. And Noah is picked out of all the people that were living at that time. Abraham, he's the one that God chose from a host of pagans to be the one to make a gracious promise to that would finally be realized in the person of Christ. Why did he pick Abraham? Of all the pagans that were living, he picked that one. Isaac is the one that God ordained. 
ordained to be the child of promise to Abraham and Sarah, the one to perpetuate the messianic seed. Why Isaac? Jacob is the one that God chose to continue the promises of the covenant through. He's the one from whom the 12 tribes of Israel came. And from the tribe of Judah would come Christ. Why did he pick Jacob? Why did he pick Judah? Judah and Tamar. Have you read that story? Why would he pick them? After Judah, it would be Moses. Seems like an obvious pick to us because we only know of Moses. But Moses is not so obvious a pick. He had a temper and he couldn't even speak very well. And this is who God chooses. Boaz and Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and of course David. Why does he pick these people? Solomon and several more kings, not all of whom were very dedicated to God at all. Why did he bring the Messiah through them? Why did he choose them? Hezekiah, pretty good king, but wicked Manasseh was not, and he's in the Messianic line. Why? Why did he choose Mary? Why did he choose Joseph? Why did God choose to do what he did? Why does he choose to do what he does? Why did he choose you? Maybe you don't feel worthy. You're not, and that's the right feeling. None of us are. Why did he choose any of us? This is the mystery of God's grace. If your response to the offer of the gospel is to want what it declares more than anything else in the universe, to have Christ, to be forgiven, to be accepted by God in Christ, then you could be assured, if you believe that, that you are God's chosen. If your response to the offer of the gospel is to say, I'm living here and now, what good is that message to me? Then maybe, maybe you're not chosen. That may be true. But here's the beautiful thing about living on this earth in the perspective God gives us, which is very limited, and that's a blessed limitation for sure. Many have heard the message of the gospel and have rejected it when they heard it until they didn't reject it anymore and they believed The mystery of God's grace, it's truly a mystery. And when it becomes effective in our lives, that's a mystery too. Only God knows. I have a friend who I debate with all the time. known him since kindergarten. We interact many days. And every once in a while we get really hardcore debating about Christianity because he calls himself an atheistic, determinist, uh, materialist. He'll say to me in a a weak moment, I'll catch him say, I, I wish that I could believe like you believe. I tell him this gets a matter. I'm praying that God gives you faith to believe. What if he's not chosen? Then he's not. But as long as he has breath in his lungs, I will tell him of his need to believe on Christ. Because from our angle, that's all that matters. That we profess, proclaim, describe, share the message of the gospel. And then as as many as are appointed unto eternal life will believe, Acts 13. The sovereignty of God unleashes us. It doesn't paralyze us. It prompts us. And if you are, if you react to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God by not doing anything, then you don't know the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You may not even know God. This doctrine compels us. It propels us to be proactive to proclaim this message of the gospel. The Bible gives us little pictures behind the scenes so we have our, our faith bolstered doesn't give us the full picture we just know he is in control and he calls us to do his work what does the knowledge of god's sovereignty do for us just a few things i'll note for you to close first knowledge of god's sovereignty like this is sovereign grace when we find ourselves believing if you hear the message you're saying i do i believe in jesus i trust in him if you believe that should the doctrine of sovereignty should give you further assurance 
that because you believe, God has put his hand upon you. You wouldn't believe otherwise. Belief actually helps you to be assured of your belief because God has to do this. Second, God's mysterious grace, it prompts us to praise him, to give him all the praise he deserves. We are dependent on him completely, and so we lay down our own idols, we lay down whatever our crowns are, and we say, you're the king. You are the king. We lay before you, completely exposed, because you are the king, and we worship you. It enhances our worship. Third, we appreciate the greatness and the power of God to act, to do what he promises he will do. He is sovereign, so he can answer those prayers. He can fulfill his promises. If he says it in his word, we can be sure it will happen. When he says that you who are born again will live forever and that you will be raised again, we can be sure it's true because the sovereign God says so. Fourth, we're humbled by the reality of God's mysterious grace. We're left to say, as I say so often in my own heart, why me? Why us? Why? There's no sense in which I should be picked. There's nothing about me. And it says in Romans 9, it isn't about, it's the good pleasure of his will. I'm left stuck a bit by this humbled state I find myself in because his grace is so mysterious and I don't deserve it. There should never be an air of arrogance about people who understand grace. It should really be, if there's any paralysis, it's for a moment of praise that he would pick you at all. Fifth, we're compelled to obedience. God has done all of this. Oh Lord, may I magnify you in obedience. May I follow, walk after your statutes. Listen to your commands and obey them. Tell me what I should do by your word. Now, I'm coming from a, a perspective of understanding that salvation is a gift to me. It's, it's, it's grace through Christ. I'm not, doing, I'm not obeying out of guilt. I'm obeying out of being prompted as a response to gratitude. Six, we are assured about our eternal future. God will finish the work he has begun in us. We're not paralyzed by fear of the future, Because our future, no matter how difficult it is in the temporary, in this life we may live, our future is secured in glory. Whatever comes to pass is guided by God's will, and a glorious future awaits his children. Kent Hughes says it this way, if you feel uncomfortable about this, again, be patient, give it time, please take no offense by my delivery, We are offended by the truth sometimes. But Kent Hughes said this, Are you scandalized by God's exercise of sovereign choice? If you are scandalized by this, you do not understand grace. Grace that is earned is not grace at all. Grace goes to the undeserving. Grace comes at God's discretion, not our directives. And grace is there for you. If you will come to Christ... And if you do come, you will discover that it is all of God from beginning to end. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. We are humbled by this. We are assured by this. And we worship you because of this. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Naked we come to you for dress. Hopeless we look to you for grace. Foul to the fountain we fly. Wash us, Savior, or we die. Amen. Let's turn now in our hymnals to respond. We'll sing to